Monument Releasing proudly presents Our Time from master filmmaker Carlos Regaras. Sight and Sound calls Our Time a soul-searching work of scorching honesty, and Vox Magazine raves it's an absolute work of art. Our Time opens June 14th at Quad Cinema, featuring Q&As with Regaras and co-stars and special guest moderators. Join us at Film at Lincoln Center on Thursday, June 27th at 6.30 p.m. for a very special film comment free talk, Queer and Now and Then. For this panel, writers Wesley Morris, Melissa Anderson, Mark Harris, and Fariha Zaman will join me, Michael Koreski, for a personal discussion about the state of LGBTQ cinema and how things have changed or haven't. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Nicholas Rapold, the Editor-in-Chief of Film Comment. The Rep Report is our regular roundup of retrospectives and other film series in New York. This edition, we turn our attention to Film Forum and Revolutionary Cinema. The name of the series is The Hour of Liberation, Decolonizing Cinema, 1966 to 1981. It's a rare look at landmark films from around the world that pushed cinema and political critique into bold new directions. These are filmmakers like Usman Semben, Glauba Rocha, Medhondo, and Sarah Gomez, who portrayed people who hadn't been seen on screen and who confronted the injustices of the era, many of which persist to this day. Joining me for the discussion is Elspeth Carroll, Repertory Programming Associate at Film Forum, who curated the series. We're also happy to welcome back Ashley Clark, Senior Repertory and Specialty Film Programmer at BAM. Let's go to the conversation. Hello and welcome to the Film Comment podcast. My name is Nick Rapold. I'm the editor-in-chief of Film Comment, and this is our latest rep report, which is our roundup of all the wonderful things that are showing on screens in New York. Maybe someday we'll talk about the whole world's rep offerings in a special deluxe five-hour podcast. Um, But for now, there's plenty that we can uh, exalt in here. Um, And I'm very pleased to be joined on this edition by... Uh, Elspeth Carroll, uh, and I'm the Repertory Programming Associate at Film Forum. And? Uh, Ashley Clark, I'm Senior Repertory and Specialty Film Programmer at BAM, and longtime loiterer on the Film Comment <laughs> podcast. This is true. In fact, we, we, we had you on a couple of, I don't know, last month, talking about Black 90s, uh, and and uh, we'll, this time we'll have a different focus, but you'll be talking a bit about um, BAM Cinema Fest. Yep on this edition. But I, I think the the series of, of the hour, just uh, because it's showing so many things that you really don't get to see much um, and all in one uh, lovely package, uh, is Hour of Liberation, uh, Decolonizing Cinema, which is a series at Film Forum that Elspeth, you have programmed. What's the premise of the series? I guess the idea behind the series was a lot of these things are maybe seen individually or, you know, we see Cinema Nova. Um, maybe you'll see uh, Senegalese cinema, but to look at all of these things together in this sort of, you know, this was a time of internationalism and it's a time when people were really looking to other countries who were experiencing similar processes. And I really wanted to kind of look at these things in dialogue and to recreate a sort of dialogue that existed. You know, there was... Uh, the Third World Filmmakers Meeting in Algeria and Buenos Aires. There were these manifestos that were circulated, that were referred to by filmmakers from different countries. 
And yeah, I, I, I wanted to really see those in, in one space and have a chance to, to think of them as, as part of, you know, a, a sort of porous and, and incongruous maybe movement. Yeah. And, and, and I guess just speaking broadly, I guess mm. you could call it kind of a mix of like different um, degrees of revolutionary cinema, but also cinema that's not like explicitly revolutionary, but is, is you know, might be a, a drama like some of the works of Usman Senben in this in that that is also putting forth a kind of alternate take on the prevailing, often colonialist uh, view of reality as experienced in in Africa and, and in France. And so, yeah, that's that's what's interesting to me is, is putting all these things together um, and also some like really kind of stuff that I just remember reading about, you know, in like a film studies class and you never actually get to see it. You hear about this was very important because of X reason, but here actually, you know, getting, getting to see them. So I guess you're, you're looking at the turn from films being made about these people by ethnographers and so on and so forth and documentaries. So was that like an animating concept, like something when, when you were thinking about the time scale of it, it's really about authorship and, and agency as well, isn't it? Yeah. I, I mean, the, the, the reason we chose decolonizing cinema and I kind of struggled with a term for this series or how to name it and I don't know how I feel about how we've named it but um it's not it's not just liberation struggles it's it's how do we actually decolonize this medium and how do we use this medium in a way that um in a way that challenges uh you know like Hollywood and and Western models of filmmaking, um, and in a way that speaks to the the people in these countries and and also to to different movements worldwide. Yeah, and these filmmakers, in in many cases, are by by their very nature griots and, and activists. You know, mm-hmm. they're speaking to their own people um, about the the situations that they've lived through and are. As you said, trying to combat. You know, I once I once interviewed um, Haile Garima, mm-hmm. uh, the Ethiopian-born LA rebellion filmmaker, and he, you know, he he has a quote about um, cinema as a as a tool of, of empire or as an imperial um, medium. Mm-hmm. So it's about almost deconstructing the language of film itself, which is why so many of these films are so formally interesting. Because as part of the process of decolonizing cinema, you have literally deconstructing Western modes of storytelling. Yeah. So are you seeing? Um, you know, with such a broad series internationally, you're kind of picking up threads across international cinemas and how are you seeing them come together? It must have been a really revelatory process for you as a researcher and a viewer as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, one of the things that's really interesting in, in terms of kind of deconstructing modes of narrative filmmaking is the way that these filmmakers themselves are doing that. So like uh, Senhinas makes Blood of the Condor. Um, he's using an indigenous language, Ukumao. He's um, working with non-actors. He's shooting it on location. And it's about, <laughs> you know, it's about decolonization. But he sort of questioned himself. He was like, this, this is connecting with urban audiences, with educated audiences. It's not connecting with the people I'm telling stories about and the people I want to see this. Um, and he was, you know, he, the, he went in next and made The Principal Enemy, um, well, 
the courage of the people and then the principal enemy. We're showing the principal enemy. Um, and he has a storyteller. It, it's, you know, it's framed by this storyteller who's speaking to the audience. He stops cross-cutting. He has these sort of like long shots. Um, and he's sort of questioning his own process. It's something Marta Rodriguez, uh, the Colombian filmmaker, who she worked with Rouge, she was a Marxist, and her her early films have this really very kind of didactic Marxist framing. And then she completely reconsiders her methodology and, and kind of the imagery she uses. Um, it, it becomes, you know, she's she's looking at the the cosmology of uh, the indigenous people in Colombia, and she's referencing that, and she's bringing in these symbols, uh, and it becomes, for us, for me, a, a lot less accessible and a, a lot more interesting. Um, yeah. And uh, you you see that you see that with filmmakers, you know, throughout the series. Um, you were. You were there at West Indies the other day. This is West Indies, um, The Fugitive Slaves of Liberty by, by Med Hondo, which yeah. is from 1979. And I believe at coming in at something like $1.2 million converted, it was it was the most African, uh, most, most African. Well, it's, <laughs> it is both the most African yeah. uh, and, the most, and the most expensive African <laughs> film um, ever made to date. Um, and it's this extraordinary Brechtian, as you say, musical um, set on one giant soundstage, effectively like a slave ship, mm-hmm. um, which tells the story of the, the history of, of the transatlantic slave trade and, and, and the Caribbean and moves kind of seamlessly between different time states. And it it's actually fairly still, I think, that there's not mm-hmm. a lot of camera movement. So it's the kind of film that when the camera does move and it happens increasingly towards the end, you really gasp and you think, okay, he's used that restraint for a reason. Um, I saw this, um, thanks to El- Elspeth and Film Forum, uh, on a really beautiful print. And I'd seen it uh, many years ago at the BFI off, you know, what what I believe was a digital file, mm-hmm. maybe from French French television or something. Mm-hmm. And it really felt like seeing it anew. It felt like seeing it for the first time. Um, and, and Med Hondo passed away um, earlier this year, I believe, around about February or March. Mm-hmm. And he was a, a Mauritanian filmmaker, um, also made the, the wonderful film Soleo, which is um, screening in the series. Um, also known for dubbing the voice of Eddie Murphy. <laughs> yes. Um, in, in French. Like, he, yeah. he, he's Shrek. He's the French Shrek. But which he's, is kind of amazing yeah, as well. Yeah, so that, that's a real career of variety. But yeah, yeah the, 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 it's very Brechtian. It's very, it's it's didactic, but it's also struggling to... To, it, it's clearly he's a work, he's an entertainer, you know, as yeah. well. He he's trying to entertain and educate and inform, and you can see these these tensions and struggles happening as the film proceeds, and it sometimes feels like it's about to fall apart at any moment. It it's, it shares with a lot of the films in the series a very understandably scathing tone. You know, you you come out of these films and you really feel you've really been through it. Yeah. You know, these are explicitly and extremely. Um, strident films mm-hmm. um but some but not in an off-putting way um so accumulatively they have a real force to watch soleo and west yeah. indies back-to-back is kind of remarkable yeah no i saw soleo at, at, at film forum and and yes yeah, scathing is is a good word for it and just the it, it's almost like this urge to go in several directions at once because there's just so much you want to say about, about about you know 
being in Paris as as you know um, an African immigrant. And, and these sorry, sorry to cut you off, but these yeah. are not filmmakers that are that have have the tools or the ability or the the funding to say, well, I tell you what, maybe this idea doesn't quite work. Right. I'll put it in my next joint. Right. You know, yeah. it's. So it's that urgent. it's urgent, it's, and it's that feeling urgent. of like over, an overspill of ideas is is really yeah. commonplace here, and it's it's there in formal formal innovation, often out of necessity. Yeah, the the megotage, the the Usman Semben quote, he mm-hmm. came up with this term cigarette butt cinema, <laughs> which is a, a allusion to just kind of scrabbling things together uh-huh. when he was making Black Girl. Oh wow! So just being essentially being resourceful. Yeah. So you see these yeah. films spilling over with invention and, and passion because yeah. they have to. That that's that's their very nature. Yeah, yeah, and and you also see kind of some some current contemporary like experimental techniques being given a new life and, mm-hmm. and a new urgency, as, as you say. Like you know, Soleil, you can see a bit of Godard in some of the playing with like image and and and, and just the kind of dissonance, but it's put to a different end. And and I don't know, in some ways, is after seeing a Godard after Godard after Godard, it's it's interesting to see it entirely new. Um, it, this, it's yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sorry again. No, go ahead, please. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's it, the it's interesting because these sort of aesthetic innovations they they feel so much more necessary here. Um, That's really interesting. In a way that, that really does give them new life. Like West Indies is, is one of the most amazing theatrical experiences I've had because I don't know, I don't know anything else I've seen where it felt like the audience was being confronted. Like it felt like he was really speaking to you and and the cast was speaking to you. And it's not a, you know, a, Hondo, the story is, rejected a great deal of funding from an American producer so he could use West Indian actors and not a known Hollywood cast. Um, And there's a certain anonymity uh, and uh, and generalness about the film that, that makes it so much more um, powerful that like you really feel like you're looking at history and that history is kind of confronting you and um hitting you in a way that you wouldn't if you were like oh yeah that's i know him right agreed <laughs> and, I, and i also want to just kind of be clear and, and speak to the film's artistry as well yeah. i'm so so wary so careful of talking about work like this and implying that it might be kind of a bit amateurish in some way it's no not, it's not yeah. i mean this is unbelievably yeah. technically skilled mm-hmm. and controlled filmmaking you know which is which is not mutually exclusive from the overspill of passion and the idea that it might explode at any moment it's rigorously controlled and so well performed as well yeah, yeah. The, i mean that's what that's what's so incredible about it is it really is you know i've i've seen some of the commentary about the series and you know uh, their experiences they're bringing but it's not just that it's you know these are auteurs of the highest order um creating some of the most interesting and exciting films of the time and in film history you know it's yeah and and they're doing it without all of these resources and without all of the training and background um, and, and Nick mentions Godard in a way that certain other filmmakers, white Western filmmakers, mm-hmm. get praised to the the hilt. Yeah, you know, for, well, for that's this kind of work. And, that's the thing is it, it's Godard or Italian neorealism. And one of the things I really wanted to do in this series was was to show how you know 
these filmmakers are influenced, but they're also influenced by what's happening uh, in Latin America and mm. what's happening in West Africa and what's happening in the Middle East. You know, like there, there's that sort of influence that's happening as well. And it's not all coming from Europe. Um, it's it's yeah, it's being it's generative. It's, yeah. it's happening there. Um, I wonder if we could talk about a couple of those films, like for example, in Latin America. Like I think you mentioned the principal enemy at one mm -hmm. point. What's what's that film about, and what's 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 the story with that? The principal enemy is U.S. imperialism. Okay. Um, but <laughs> spoiler. <it's>, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, what's what's sort of interesting about it is. So this is one of the films, I guess the first film um, San Ginés made after leaving Bolivia. Um, he, I think he was in Italy editing uh, The Courage of the People and he didn't want to go back because of the right-wing government. Um, and it's, it's made with this group of peasants and it's an exercise in what he calls collective filmmaking. Um, and it's it's a dispute with a landowner. This this really nasty landowner is is stealing their animals, livestock. Oh, the livestock. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and they confront him, and he beheads a peasant in front of his family. And they go to the authorities, and there's some sort of play that they're going to punish. Uh, the landowner and of course they don't and so they meet this guerrilla band uh, and they take justice into their own hands uh, and what's interesting about it is this this uh, confrontation with the guerrillas is again this sort of didactic process they're they're like we we want to join you and we want to learn and so there's this point where they the gorillas are speaking to them and they're like you know this process you're experiencing is also a global process huh. um and the problem is imperialism mm -hmm. uh and so it's Sanhinas is very aware of his audience and he wants this to be shown in these rural communities. Um, and so he's sort of, I think Semben talks about cinema as like a night school and he's doing the same mm -hmm. thing. He's, he's really educating um, with his films, but in a way that he thinks will engage. Well, he was, he kind of came to cinema quite late. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think he makes Black Girl in his mid forties. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So he's been a novelist for a long time and yeah public speaker and a teacher and he in, in black girl which is perhaps the most well-known film mm -hmm. in here because it, it you know had the benefit yeah. of the, the criterion mm -hmm. um dvd and it had the week run and it's which i believe restored. you wrote a essay for potentially you know i did, I did. <laughs> um but yeah and he, he appears in the the film mm -hmm. with his pipe the ever-present pipe and his 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 audiences he, they would have known him yeah mm -hmm. so he's explicitly taking on that role which yeah. is really interesting yeah um i I mean, to, to the extent that you're, you're able and comfortable to talk about it, the, the process as a programmer of putting together a series like this, um, which is a very international series, you know, you're not, it's not the standard process of booking a DCP from a studio. Um, can you speak to just some of the challenges and perhaps give a sense of the time scale, the, re the level of research that goes into this? Yeah, I mean, yeah. The, the research is obviously the the most lengthy process and and the most important. I'm not an expert on each of these cinemas. I, you know, I, I'm relying heavily on things I'm reading. Um, and that took 
probably about a year just to kind of establish some sort of initial list that was perhaps possible. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And from there, you know, uh, again, yeah, these aren't these aren't studio films. Uh, I can't call up Warner Brothers and (laughs) they're going to have a beautiful 35 millimeter print sitting in their vault or a DCP. Um, Although what an alternative universe for Warner Brothers. (laughs) (laughs) Making a big budget battle of Algiers. (laughs) Um, But yeah, you know, a lot of it is, is seeing what's actually available. And there are things in this series that I've heard about and I hadn't seen until we got them in because... There was no way to see them Mm. Um, and trying to track down and find screenable materials, riots. Um, a lot of the rights are extremely confusing. Well, a lot that's of them another are like aspect of it. You know, they're very, it's, it's very intertwined. Obviously, programming is, is an emotional mm. process in many ways in yeah. that um, beyond the obvious, you can spend ages researching something. Nobody turns up to watch it. Yeah, that's emotional for me. <laughs> that's the trauma. I'm talking trauma. really about you know if the ultimate goal of, of film programming and, and curation is to like serve the artist to make yeah. sure that they're you know often in in the case of this kind of series or series that I've put together in the past, you're working with um, artists who've like been burned, been really underserved, poorly represented, mismanaged, ripped off in some cases. And it can take a long time to build up trust. Yeah. It can be an incredibly emotional process. And and that, that ties into the issue of rights because mm. it's one thing to to get uh, materials for a film. It's another thing entirely to clear the rights to yeah. actually be able to show them. So I, I'm just imagining for, for a series like this, again, which is so international, mm. yeah. um, that there, there were certain aspects of that. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the the rarest and for me one of the most interesting things we showed was sort of the namesake of the series Mm. Haney Storrs The Hour of Liberation Has Arrived which I don't think has ever been shown theatrically in the US um I know that she was in New York in 1984 (laughs) um as part of a, a conference on like third world filmmaking um but she I mean she has been burned over the years and this is a extremely powerful film about something that has been sort of erased from history which is this um uprising in dofar in uh, oman uh which was a feminist guerrilla uprising um for her i think she she found the topic somebody introduced it to her and it was eye-opening because she thought the only way towards gender equality was this sort of like Western capitalist progress. Um, and she saw these many illiterate peasants um, who were adopting a more strident feminist politics uh, than, than most Western countries at so the time. So you weren't tempted to call it? Lean in, <laughs> colonizing cinema. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> but that's but that's sort of I I, I kind of wanted to name it after it because it's so rare, and um, it was you know, we we wrote our own subtitles. She had translated most of it. We sort of edited it a little. That's another thing you have to yeah. do. You have to, like, yeah. live subtitling yeah. and all that kind of thing. Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. it's. Yeah. 
it's what you have to do if you want these things to be seen. And, and it's the only way I think to make them available is I think that's sort of part of our responsibility as programmers is to introduce things into a conversation. And I think it's something you've done incredibly successfully at BAM um, to kind of create a, a space that is accessible, not just to like the, the most the snobbiest cinephile the people won't know <laughs> yeah <laughs> and, and, but and still introduce things that even they are not going to be familiar with because you think they you know we have to be talking about these things and and i really wanted with this series you know a, a lot of a lot of liberation movements and and Hini Stroh talks about this a lot she did an interview with mary saba a lebanese filmmaker recently um a lot of these liberation movements used women um, and ha practiced a sort of feminist politics in order to overcome the colonizer and then, mm. you know, it completely let it slide afterwards. And, and I really wanted to introduce some sort of critique within this series. And so, yeah. you know, I wanted to have Hini Sror, uh, Sara Gomez, mm. um, and a lot of the film, I mean, Sarah Maldoror, it's it's not a explicitly feminist um, narrative, mm -hmm. but she centers female characters um, and she's interested in this sort of like coming to consciousness um, of women yeah. within the movement. From Carlos Rigaras, the mind behind Cannes Award winners Post Tenebrous Lux and Silent Light comes our time a provocative meditation on love, family, and masculinity that won the Critics' Prize at the San Sebastian Film Festival. Sight and Sound says it's a soul-searching work of scorching honesty. Fox Magazine calls it a twisted tale of love and an absolute work of art. Our Time opens June 14th at Quad Cinema, with Q&As on opening weekend with Regadas, co-star Natalia Lopez, and special guest moderators. Join us at Film at Lincoln Center on Thursday, June 27th at 6.30 p.m. for a very special film comment free talk, Queer and Now and Then. For this panel, writers Wesley Morris, Melissa Anderson, Mark Harris, and Fariha Zaman will join me, Michael Koreski, for a personal discussion about the state of LGBTQ cinema and how things have changed or haven't. And go to filmcomment.com to read my column, Queer and Now and Then, for a bi-weekly deep dive into the history of queer cinema. Yeah, I mean, actually, I'm 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 curious about those two filmmakers, especially Sarah Gomez and Sarah Moldovar. Could you tell us a bit about the film? I think you have Samba Zanga is the Moldovar mm -hmm. film, and I'm forgetting which Gomez film you have. Uh, it's One Way or Another. Oh yeah. Yeah, which was which was her only feature film. She did shorts as well, right? Or? She did a lot of shorts. Yeah. Um, she she died at I think 31. I believe of an asthma attack and the film was actually completed after her death by Tomas Gutierrez Alea and I think Espinosa, Garcia Espinosa. Um, but it's a really interesting film. It's a, um, and I think a very ambiguous, uh, film. She, she moves between documentary and narrative. There's this long section where she talks about um, Abaqua, uh, the the Afro-Cuban religious sect, wow. um, and she really sort of comes down against it. She she sees it as this 
um, this barrier to progress. Um, and she's one of, there are a few in this series, but um, within Ikaik, within the, the Cuban cinema center, post-revolutionary Cuban cinema center, there weren't that many Afro-Cuban filmmakers. Mm. Um, there's Jose Masip, we're showing uh, Medina Boe, uh, there's uh, Sergio Giral. Sergio well. Giral, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and there's uh, and and what's interesting also, I think, is that uh, Maloala really, really sort of delves into, I mean, the culture within these palenques, uh, these settlements of escaped slaves in Cuba, mm -hmm. but also within like uh, Afro-Cuban religion uh, and culture, like expressive culture. But what's interesting is that Sarah Gomez really comes down against it. She's very, she's very into this sort of like revolutionary progress, and she sees a lot of things. You know, the these chauvinistic macho, um, machismo. Yeah, yeah, the the machismo both within this culture and within the the culture of the the Spanish peasants uh, who came over to Cuba as really. Uh, preventing any kind of progress, but it's it's such a strange film and it's such an ambiguous film. Like at the end, you don't really know how to feel. And she's coming, she's she's sort of coming down on the side of progress. Part of it is they're destroying these slums to create this new housing development, and you see this destruction of the buildings, and it's like, is this? Is this good? <laughs> you know, it, it, it feels sort of ambiguous. Well, I mean, earlier I talked, to, I was going on about kind of how these films are quite strident and mm -hmm. scathing, but there is also in 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 many of them uh, maybe a, perhaps like a purposeful ambivalence. Yeah. Mm. So they're they're not tentative in any way. They're very strong, but yet they do leave you, as you say, with one way or another. Actually, and it's an honest expression of of not perhaps not being quite sure. Yeah, I, I, I love it. I mean, that's what I find so interesting is how can political filmmaking be be sort of ambivalent and leave space for interpretation? Yeah. I mean, I'm not I'm obviously not yeah. having a go at you here, yeah. um, but there's a no British cinema in here. Not that there absolutely <laughs> has to be, but I, I, I jest, of course. But following this, you know, you, the, the, the next wave, I suppose, in the 80s. So you've got the, the, the continued work of the L.A. Rebellion filmmakers in the States. Um, and then in the UK, there's the whole Black British workshop movement, so Black Audio mm -hmm. Film Collective, Sankofa. Mm -hmm. um, and then probably the most strident was um, Chedo, which is Menelik mm -hmm. Shabazz and his crew. But what um, Black Audio Film Collective do so well is that that kind of ambivalence. Films like yeah. Testament and Twilight City, they're very, they're very radical, they're very political, but they also, you know, and, and Who Needs a Heart, which is uh, this very kind of, um, oblique elliptical film about the British Black Power movement, which does kind of raise a real eyebrow at it and, and kind of looks at the chauvinism of, of it as well and, and looks at that head on. They, there's even a very kind of dream dreamlike, ambiguous portrait of, of Malcolm X in Seven mm. Songs for Malcolm X. Mm. So you, you see, I think the, the Black Audio Film Collective are really looking at these films for, for um, influence and inspiration and they're taking some of that ambivalence and ambiguity and allying it to a very strong political voice. And that's really interesting filmmaking. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, I sort of hope um, people are seeing this series having previously seen your series, I guess, last summer, which I don't know, I don't know how late it went. I saw um, Horace Ove's Pressure there. Oh, um, okay. So this know. is, oh, this is, um, it was called Say It Loud Cinema um, in the Age of Black Power, yeah. um, which was, 
um, similar similar kind of framework, sixty six to, yeah. to eighty one. So it um, it was it was kind of the, the, the version of what was going on here in in in, in the states. Mm -hmm. um, so looking at there's not a great deal. There's not a huge amount of filmmaking being made out of the black arts movement. It's yeah. more kind of poetry and music, but mm -hmm. um, films that were made in that era. And I suppose yeah, we could look yeah. at it as a, as a companion series in a way. Um, I like to look at it that way. Yeah, um, <laughs> which is cool. Yeah. Uh, and when Horace Ovi's Pressure, which is a film that I'll never tire of going on about, um, mm -hmm. from 1975, it's wide, widely regarded as the first black British feature mm -hmm. film, um, and it's about a young a young black boy, a school leaver, who's probably about. 16, 17, I think, mm. and and he his parents are from Trinidad. They were born in Trinidad. They moved over. He has an older brother who was born in Trinidad, but is in London. But he all he knows is London, mm. so he's got you know he says it explicitly at one point. He hasn't got the the dream of going back to sun, sea, and sand. All he's got is mm. is tower blocks. So he kind of drifts through the film, and um, his older brother is very active in the the British Black Power movement, but he's not really feeling it. But mm. he's facing kind of explicit and implicit discrimination all around him. And it ends with this absolutely pathetic, rain-sodden protest sequence to try and get his brother out of jail because his brother's been arrested on made-up charges. Mm. Uh, a, a Black Power rally has been raided. And it just kind of ends on this freeze frame. And it's it's a real, like, shrug. It's an acknowledgement yeah. of mm. the need for polit political action, but um, a question over its efficacy. Yeah. And and it's really interesting, and I think there mm. are certainly some parallels. Yeah, yeah. well, I, that's one of the I think what you were saying earlier. I think that's one of the really interesting things about this series and thinking of it in terms of Alley Rebellion filmmakers and Black Audio Collective is is that this is where they were looking. They weren't looking to uh, necessarily Hollywood films or even American independent. And they were going to conferences. They were yeah, and they were fiercely critiquing each other's films as well. Yeah, like the Haile Garimas and Med Hondos, like mm. notable on the circuit for being, <laughs> you know, tough guys. Like, yeah. like, you know, right? they wouldn't yeah. spare each other the criticism. And there's yeah. something, you know, this is a history that maybe among cinephile circles mm. is, is is maybe a bit more well known, but even perhaps not. Yeah. But there's you know in Fespaco as well. This mm -hmm. is an anniversary this year with Film Africa celebrations mm. of. Um, I, I, it's it's a big anniversary of of the key. Can mm. Keystone, mm. Keystone, that's not right. Keystone key, Cops, key. <laughs> Lodestone, Keynote, uh, Touchstone, Touchstone, know. Landmark, yeah, Landmark, <laughs> Milestone. I quite like Keystone, keystone. frankly. Um, yeah. This is a, this is a bit it holds keystone everything cops, up. I it? think the Keystone doesn't yeah. hold everything up. There we yeah. go. It's a Keystone anniversary. Go. I'm afraid I can't remember quite which one as <laughs> yeah. we speak, but there's all these dialogues happening, and, and yeah, yeah, people yeah. looking looking to each other, and there's a real yeah. uh, international kind of Pan African. A community of filmmakers yeah. all, all sharing experiences of displacement decolonization intergenerational you know pe people's parents who were born in one place mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. or part of liberation movements and then new governments come in and things don't quite pan out and then yeah. they go back and and, yeah. and all of these things inform each other yeah well that's that's probably a good note to um kind of uh, wrap up in, in terms of uh discussion this particular series uh which is running through i want to say what's the date here june 13th june 13th uh at film forum so i encourage you to uh see films in the series as i will and ash do you have a do you have a quick second to talk a bit about uh, another series that's coming up actually we'll probably start the day this posts <laughs> well we have uh, the annual bam bam cinema fest yeah. um, which is um a 
12-day celebration of uh, new American independent cinema. Um, I know this is the rep report. All of these films one day will be repertory. <laughs> That's the way I look, wow. I look at it. That's sort of a mime. No one said that before. <laughs> yeah, I mean... The classics I, of tomorrow. I've come here to change people's minds, <laughs> to blow people's minds with my Keystone Cops <laughs> style. Um, and yeah, it, it, we're really excited about it this year. I mean, just in terms of the process, we uh, we start really with Sundance when you know a whole mm-hmm. slew of new mm-hmm. films are shown yeah. to the world for the first time, and we're looking at stuff that that we're interested in, um, that we think is unusual, interesting, experimental, personal. That's kind of in line with our overall year-round repertory mission of platforming work. By, by artists who, who may otherwise not find a space to, to express themselves, work that is, again, to, to repeat myself, personal, but, you know, progressive, socially conscious, and um, without wishing to sound too worthy, stuff that's engaged in the world as it is. Um, and this year we have a really interesting lineup. 18 New York premieres, three world premieres, and one US premiere. The US premiere is a film called So Pretty, which is a second feature by Jesse Jeffrey Dunn Ruvinelli, oh, yeah. um, which is this kind of, really fascinating portrait of a queer community in Brooklyn um, and it's based on a, a novel a, Ger- a German novel that is kind of I think was finished but went unpublished huh. and it's very experimental and interesting and uh, intriguing and, and beautifully shot and shot on kind of grainy film and high-grade digital and lots of mixing there there's a world premiere Sunrise Sunset by a young uh, a filmmaker called Jong Ugi Pak about a young Korean-American guy who's kind of even more useless than some of Hong Sang Soo's um, <laughs> protagonists. He comes uh-huh. to New York to visit his girlfriend and uh-huh. he's just a, a completely hapless character uh-huh. and very deadbeat and downbeat and it's very kind of wry and funny and it makes, it, it casts New York in a whole new light, a kind of outsider's perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the Cancer Journal's Revisited um, by Lana Lin, who's a filmmaker, artist and professor at the New School. Um, and this this is a a reinterpretation of Audre Lorde's cancer journals, so kind of landmark text, and it features uh, a lot of um, cancer survivors, predominantly women of colour, um, talking about their experiences in the framework of a, of a very experimental um, poetic narrative. We love it. And then the third world premiere is a film called Delo Mio, which is first-time filmmaker, uh, Dominican-American uh, filmmaker called Diana Peralta, and this is the closing night film, mm-hmm. um, and it's incredibly just um, tender and, and poetic story of two Dominican American sisters from from Harlem who go back to the Dominican Republic to basically clear out their old family home following the death of their father, mm-hmm. and their brother is there, um, and it's it's just so beautifully observed, and I kept watching it, waiting for. Not that I didn't have confidence in the filmmaker, but when you watch a lot of American independent debuts, so many eventually, like they, they might take their time, but they will get there to that playbook, to that third act playbook. Right, to the bow to tie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Or, or, the, or the gun is introduced and you hear, oh, here we go. And I, I was kind of waiting for a while um, for something to, to, to make it more conventional, but in the best and most beautiful possible way, nothing happens. It's all about the characters and about the landscape, and it's such confident filmmaking. Mm. And we all we all looked at it, the four of us on the selection committee, and we just said yes. yes. And that's a nice feeling. Um, yes. So yeah, that runs from the 12th to the 23rd of June. Um, and one other quick thing I'll mention is yeah. that the last time I was on this podcast, uh, I talked about Black 90s. Right. And uh, on uh, just a couple of days before 
we recorded John Singleton had suffered his stroke right, and I think he, that he passed away yeah. like two days after we recorded which yeah. was really shocking and incredibly sad um, and we thought it would be kind of apt and right to, to put together a proper tribute to, to John Singleton um, and actually shine a spotlight on some of his movies that aren't Boys in the Hood or Poetic Justice things like Rosewood and, and Higher Learning mm -hmm. And hustle and flow, which he was like, he produced, and you know, he had, he had a he was a mentor as well and a producer. So from September the thirteenth and nineteenth, we're going to do a full uh, retrospective of, of John Singleton at BAM with uh, a number of special guests to be announced. So keep an eye out for that, please. Yeah, no, thank thank you for for, for that. Yeah, um, and so I mean, I think that's usually what I do on the podcast as well. Mm. The report is I. I talk about some other series just quickly. I like to give shout outs to everyone. Um, just starting with where we are now at Film at Lincoln Center, formerly known as Film Society at Lincoln Center. <laughs> the alarm goes off. The alarm goes off. I get a little shocked <laughs> when I say society. Um, it's, it's okay. I'm okay. No. <laughs> and uh, a series that, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm quite excited about showing the films of Hermano Olmi. I don't think there's been a, a retrospective of him for a number of years. Uh, so you can see them all here. That, that kind of um, continues from the Open Roads Italian cinema series we have here. And then at the Quad, uh, they have a Pauline Kael series, uh, which is, uh, you know, films that she advocated and also some films that she didn't, uh, which has raised a little controversy, I guess. I mean, in the <laughs> tiny, tiny world of people who might uh, object um, justifiably. Um, and the then dark corners the of dark <laughs> corner. film Twitter. What's yeah. known as the film dark web, uh, basically. Um, where illicit opinions are, are, are traded. Um, uh, Anthology Film Archives, uh, which is going to be undergoing renovations at some point. But not too soon. But not too soon. So that's why I definitely wanted to highlight. They're doing a prison images series, which I thought was really interesting. Um, and in including a film that they actually gave a run to, Brett Story's the prison, prison in twelve landscapes. Yeah, which is an extraordinary film that, and I'm glad they gave it a run. And now they're showing other films uh, around oh, that. Theme. Speaking of Brett's story, sorry, yeah. the, the, her new film, The Hottest August, yes. um, is you're not supposed to pick favorites as a programmer, but that really is one of the best films in in our yeah. festival. And and a big New York film, an amazing New York yeah, out of yeah. borough movie. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Come see that. Yes, I, I saw that at the True False Film Fest and interviewed her there, so you can read that uh, interview. And and she has. Great things to say in and out of the film. Um, and uh, then MoMA, um, actually speaking of, uh, you mentioned a, a movie about cancer. Um, that sort of puts me in mind of Julia Reichert, who um, directed this film, Lion in the House, uh, which I think is among the films that are showing in a series devoted to her at MoMA, including her latest, American Factory, uh, which is a Sundance um, highlight among the nonfiction there. Um, tracking a factor, I think it was, let's see, Ohio, or is it? Dayton, Ohio. Dayton, Ohio, yeah. uh, where a Chinese company had, had, it was taking over a factory and the, the culture clash and, and differing approaches to uh, management <laughs> and, and, it's, and culture. Interestingly, so another film that is, um, to kind of call back to what we were saying earlier, yeah, it's yeah. politically very, you know, you know where you stand with it, yes. but yet it opens up so much room for empathy with everybody. Yes. You know, it's a real... Um, considered community portrait. Yes. And you have the, the Chinese workers. You have you get to understand their culture. Yeah, yeah. And how it's so embedded. And similarly with with the Americans, it has one of the all time great comic documentary scenes when the Americans take a trip oh, God, to yeah. China. Yeah. And and try and kind of 
vibe with their their <laughs> office routines. It's absolutely hysterically funny, but not mm. in a way that you're laughing at. No, you're no, always kind true. of laughing with and, and in a very empathetic way. And it's a beautiful film. Yeah, you're kind of side by side with everyone, just trying to make sense of it, of it all. Well, none of it makes it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. Like the, the concept is is completely flawed yeah. of, of trying to do this the yeah. way they do it. Yeah. Um, kind of like Brexit. <laughs> but, um, Wait a second. Yeah. And now for the Brexit editorial. Yeah, uh, this is where you, you switch off. <laughs> this is Nick and Elspeth go home. <laughs> uh, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's also I want to emphasize is just kind of scratching the surface. Both of the series, Hour of Liberation, there are plenty of other films to, to discover there and just generally what's going on uh, in the city in terms of repertory. And I also just want to mention because it jumped in my mind while we were talking that these aren't films that are like history, you know, they're, <laughs> these are films that are basically now as well, you know, and even, you know, just seeing a film like Baccarat at Cannes is a film that's like a direct dialogue with, with the sort of films we've been talking about. So, Can I quickly please, say yeah. that actually was a huge part of doing the series now is that yeah. there's so much interesting work. Yeah. We had uh, Naeem Mohaiman introduce Interview the other day, who's who's doing incredible work right now yeah. on this period, but you know, also people are still trying to get past um, this yeah. sort of dominant aesthetic or this dominant methodology mm -hmm. in filmmaking. It's still happening. People are still trying to yeah. do what these films do so successfully. That was just one of the, the things that kept coming up with the Black Power series. It was like, yeah. None of the none of these issues have been solved. Right. <laughs> like <laughs> surprise, it's, it's, it's as relevant now as ever. You know that honking yeah. cliche, but they, it really yeah. is. You know, yeah. there's a reason these films are timely because certain intractable issues um, about structural racism and white supremacy and mm -hmm. colonialism. Mm -hmm. You know, post post colony isn't in and of itself a flawed term. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that's why a series like this just just is so resonant. Yeah, and and all the films are just as like vibrant and invigorating for that. Well, I think that brings us to the end of this particular rep report, but I want to thank you both so much. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Nick. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast with music by Greg Einge. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comet. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle. <laughs>